In the Talmud, we are taught Ein Bal Hanes Makir Beniso. The one who is the recipient of a miracle never knows that the miracle happened to him. Miracles are only evident in retrospect. And with that in mind, I want to offer you the following observation, that you are participants in a miracle. I want, you to, I want you to have some sense of, what, of appreciation of that. First level of the miracle. 60 years ago, a generation ago, we were the victims of the greatest act of evil ever, convict, ever, con, ever committed in the world. Six million Jews, a third of the Jewish people, was destroyed in Europe. The heart of the Jewish people was destroyed in Europe. Turns out that 90% of the rabbis in the world were murdered in the Holocaust. 90% of the Jewish books in the world were destroyed in the Holocaust. 90% of the Torah scrolls in the world were destroyed in the Holocaust. The fact that there are Jews today who are willing to show up and say, this matters to me, I'm Jewish, to me is quite a miracle. It's quite a remarkable miracle. There's a beautiful teaching in the Torah the Torah says that when Moses and the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea, Torah says, They believed in God and they trusted Moses. So there was a rabbi in the Talmud that says, well, of course they believed in God. And of course they trusted Moses. They just saw the sea split. They just walked across in dry land. Who wouldn't believe after such a miracle? And the other rabbis of the Talmud answered him and said, no having been slaves for so many generations, having seen so many of their children thrown into the Nile and so many of their elders destroyed, the fact that this people was willing to take a step forward to tomorrow is a greater miracle than the splitting of the sea. And if that was a greater miracle than the splitting of the sea, then I would submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that your presence here tonight is the greatest single miracle in all of Jewish history. That a generation after the Holocaust, that a community of Jews gathers together and gives of itself, its time, its resources, its personal resources, its financial resources, to create the programs that Ari's created, community scholars, to bring people together, adults and kids and families, to learn together, to grow together, to share scholarship together, is a remarkable miracle. It is a remarkable gift. Now on top of that, there's something more specific. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. I grew up in the West Valley. Orange groves, goat farms, and a half a dozen Jews. Orange County was not a place you went for Jewish life. <laughs> Jewish life ended at Pico. You drove south, and there was a big sign saying, last exit for Jews until San Diego. And somewhere in Chula Vista, there were a few Jews there. But Orange County, when I grew up, was not a place you went for Jewish life, right? You know, members of the John Birch Society, yes. Jews, not so much, you know? The only Jewish life that I knew here growing up when I was a kid was Rabbi Tofield's synagogue, Beth Emmet in Anaheim. We used to have a big USY chapter there, which we would all go to so we could go to dances and watch the fireworks at Disneyland. That's it. 
that you're here, that this community thrives, that it has a program which is a model now copied across the country. You have, you have to have a sense of history, my own sense of history, to know how remarkable this is, that there's a day school and a JCC and a number of congregations. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're Jews. Jews never want to hear good news. <laughs> Jews thrive on Tsuris. You know, Jews want to hear... Abba Eben, the great diplomat, said, Jewish people are the only people in the world who refuse to take yes for an answer. <laughs> you know? You know, the Jewish telegram says, worry, details will follow, you know? <laughs> you don't want to hear good news, you know? So I'm going to tell you that the fact that there's so many thriving congregations and, and a Jewish day school, which is a model for the country, and warm and loving Jewish life, and this program here, and you're going to say, yes, but don't you understand, Rabbi? Yes, I know, I know. I read the statistics. I just want you to take a breath and say, my God, look what we've created. And I want you to feel proud of this. And I've been privileged now. This is my second time here for this program. And you told me I'm the only one ever been invited back. So that's, that's a huge privilege. So first of all, a very big thank you to Ari for everything he's created. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. I, I hope we don't have to exercise that insurance policy so quick. <laughs> But when the time comes, it's going to be a whole lot more than money you've left behind in this community. Congratulations to you, right? And to Marianne, who has been so kind to me, thank you so very, very much, right? Thank you so very, very much. And I, I just have to tell you and Mel that the room wasn't all that nice, you know? <laughs> I, I was woken up this morning early by the sound of the waves and this beautiful sunrise and the gorgeous, never mind. You, you didn't want to be in that room anyway. So, but thank you, thank you for your kindness and your welcome and your hospitality and your responsiveness to all of the things I asked for and the t-shirts and everything. Thank you so very, very much. And to, and to the Bames and the McDonald's who created this and supported this today, thank you so very, very much. It is a real privilege to be able to share these days with you. So thank you so very, very, very much. And to all of you, thank you. And to all of you who have supported community scholars, as well as all of the Jewish initiatives of Orange County, I'm proud of you. And the Jewish people is proud of you. You've created something here remarkable, highly unexpected, and quite miraculous. So when you stand in the face of a miracle, you have to say a bracha. You'll pardon me for just one minute. I want to go back to being a rabbi. You say a bracha because you say, I have witnessed something beyond my expectations. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, shechianu v'kimanu v'giyanu lazman hazir. Thank you, God, for giving us time and days to see moments of wonder and joy and celebration. Thank you all so very, very much. Amen. Open up your booklet. We've talked about the Bible, and we've talked about the rabbis, and if we had another six or eight weeks, we would do the rest of Jewish history. But what I want to do tonight, in the, in the little few minutes we have together, is to bring us up to modernity. And the text that I would like to teach you as the most powerful indic indicator of the problems of modernity and the question of building a Jewish life and building a meaningful life in modernity is Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> 
A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But in our little village of Anatevka, you might say that every one of us is a fiddler on the roof trying to scratch out a little tune without breaking his neck. Why do we stay there if it's so dangerous? Because Anatevka's our home. And how do we keep our balance? That, I can tell you in one word. Well, that was pretty pathetic. <laughs> Let me try that again. That, I can tell you in one word. Tradition. So sing with me. Ready? Tradition. Tradition. Bum, 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 tradition. 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 Bum, 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 Tradition. Now I need all the gentlemen in the room. All the gentlemen, join me. You're going to sing Tevye's part. Ready? Who day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, say his daily prayers, and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home? The papa, the papa, tradition. The papa, the papa, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Ladies, would you please play, play Goldie with me, ready? Who must know the way to make a proper home, a quiet home? A kosher home, who must raise a family and run the home. So Papa's free to read the holy books. Bum, bum. The mamas, the mamas, tradition. The mamas, the mamas, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Gentlemen, you're going to play the sons now. Ready? Gentlemen, ready? At three I started Hebrew school. At ten I learned a trade. I hear they picked a bride for me. I hope she's pretty. The sun, the sun, tradition. The sun, the sun, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Ladies, now ready? And who does mama teach to mend and tend and fix? Preparing me to marry whoever papa picks. The daughters, the daughters, tradition. The daughters, the daughters, tradition. Bum, bum, now we would sing the round now if we'd had more wine at dinner. <laughs> In the world of tradition, every personal fact of your life was determined before you were born. Fiddler on the Roof was created in 1963, previewed in 1964, opened in 1964. It's been on Broadway now a dozen times. It's the great origin story of our Judaism. American Jews love this story because all of us identify. We all want to think of Tevi as our ancestor and as a Tefka as our ancestral home. And by the way, it's not just Jews. My friend Theo Bekel, I met Theo Bekel, I, mean, I get to know Theo Bekel. You know Theo Bekel? Yeah. So Theo Bekel tells me a story. He says he was in Japan. He was on tour in Japan. And he sees a handbill in the hotel that there's a Japanese language version of Fiddler on the Roof. So he says to the concierge, I want to go see this. I got to go see this. So he goes to see the play. And he sits through a Japanese language version of Fiddler. Doesn't understand a word of it, but he's played the part on Broadway so many times, he knows it by heart. So afterwards, he says to his host, I'd like to meet the guy who played Tevia. They take him backstage into the guy's dressing room, and he says, I'm Theo Bikel. I played this part on Broadway for 10 years. And the guy looks at him strange. And he says, why are you looking that way? 
He says, it's hard for me to imagine a person like you playing Tevia. He says, why? He says, because it's so Japanese. You see, because Japanese culture went through the same thing. We love Fiddler because it's about tradition. But it's not about tradition. It's about the forces that came and destroyed tradition. Remember the story? Tevia in the original, in, Te in Shalom Aleichem's stories, has five daughters. In the, in the play, he only has three. Right? Well, there's five, but we only know the story of the three, right? Now, these girls, in that world, what gave you capital in the matchmaking world was you know, that you were either pretty or rich or came from good yichas. And Tevye's daughters have none of that. Well, they weren't even pretty. In the movie, they were pretty. But in the play, not so much, right? Right? And so what happens is, it's a great day when, when Yenta the matchmaker, it's a great name for a matchmaker, shows up in their homestead and says she has found a match for Tzaitl, the oldest. Tzaitl is a little overripe. She's, she's 20 years old and not married, God forbid, right? And, and what happens is, Tzaitl, she found a match for Tzaitl. Who's Tzaitl going to marry? The butcher laser wolf. Mazel tov. The butcher laser wolf is an older man. He's Tevye's peer. The butcher laser wolf is a widower. The butcher laser wolf is cruel. The butcher laser wolf drinks. And when he's not drinking, he beats his wife. Why is this a good match? Because if your daughter marries the butcher, she'll never starve. So Tevye gets very excited, goes to the local tavern, and joins with the Russian peasants and sings to life. To life, lechayim, and they all wish him congratulations. And he comes back from the, the bar, from the tavern, a little, a little, a little high, a little chicker, and he meets Saitel at the gate, and she says, "Papa, I refuse the match. I will not marry the butcher laser wolf." And he says, "Really?" She says, "Yes, because I'm promised to another. You're promised to another. Who made this promise?" She said, "I did." And who are you promised to? The poor, skinny, unaccomplished, starving, orphan, tailor, muttle, chemsoil. And Tevye says, why would you give up a match to the rich, powerful laser wolf to marry a poor, unaccomplished tailor? And she says, Papa, I love him. To which Tevye responds, with the words of the great sage Tina Turner. <laughs> What's love got to do with this? <laughs> you don't marry for love. You don't marry for happiness. You marry to fulfill your responsibilities to God, the community, and the Jewish people. You, you, marry, you marry because that's what your father told you to do. Who do you think you are? And she says, Papa, this is what I'm going to do. And in that moment is born the first element of what we call modernity. You see, up to that moment, the self is totally embedded in community. Every decision is made by the self. If your father was a tailor, you were a tailor. If your father was a, a, a milkman, you'd be a milkman. If your father was a butcher, you'd be a, a butcher. Unless, of course, you were a woman, in which case you'd be a wife and a mother no matter what you wanted to do. There was no such thing as I want. There's what was responsible to tradition. 
But with Seidel's decision is born something brand new into the world, the choosing self, moral autonomy. The choosing independent self is born. And the choosing self becomes the most powerful aspect of modernity. And it's interesting that in Fiddler, that in Fiddler, the image, the, the symbol of the choosing self is romantic love. Because in romance, one privileges one's emotions over everything else. It's your feelings, it's your happiness. In the tradition, happiness was not an issue. You're happy, you weren't happy, it doesn't matter, it's a mitzvah. Suddenly, Tzaitl says, I'm going to pursue my happiness. And in that moment is born the choosing self. And this is the most outstanding aspect of modernity. Come to America, we are the celebration of the choosing self. You all know this. You remember the first great advertising campaign on television that really was memorable was for Clairol hair color. Remember that? Watch, I'll watch, I'll, I'll show you how powerful it was. It said, it showed you a beautiful lady, and she said, you know, if I have only one life, let me live it as a because blondes. Now that commercial hasn't run in 50 years. I'm not kidding. 50 years. Because blondes have, if I have only one life, I will live it according to my own lights. Understand that's the autonomous self. If I have only one life, you're not going to tell me how to live my life. We send all of our kids off to university. University is where they wash them clean of everything we put in them. And they come home their own selves. You know, you take this beautiful Jewish kid who had a wonderful day school education, and you send him off to college, and the kid comes home and says, no, 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 I'm a Buddhist and a vegan. And don't call me Jennifer. I've adopted my Native American name. You know, but don't worry, Dad, it's also a Jewish name. I said, what's your name? Said, White Fish. You know? <laughs> he said, what happens? You go to university. You hold, the whole universe is open to you. It's all about choice. It's all the choices you get. In America, it is all about choice. If I have only one life, I'm not going to live the life of my parents. My personal values, my lifestyle, my politics, everything that I am is going to be what I chose. There's no such thing as tradition in the world of personal choice. I, when I first moved to LA, I almost crashed the car. I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard. I, was away from, I, I moved out of LA for 10 years. I came back, and I'm driving down Santa Monica Boulevard. There's this big billboard on Van Nuys Boulevard, on, on Santa Monica Boulevard, for some plastic surgeon. I think to myself, what a place is America. Not only can you change your values, your spirituality, your politics, your way, way of life, you don't have to be born with the tuchas you were born with. You, if you were born with, if it's too small, if it's too big, we can fix it. We'll make you look like somebody else. Think about this for a minute. You don't have to live with the physiognomy you were born with. If I have only one life, let me live it as a 36D. <laughs> it's an amazing idea. Choice. Free choice. This is the first element of modernity. Now, Tevia thinks after Tzaitl, things are going to get easier. Remember, Tzaitl gets married. And at Tzaitl's wedding, something amazing happens. A young man who came into Tevia's homestead named Perchik, remember? Perchik is a revolutionary running away from the Tsar's police. And he's living in Tevia's homestead. 
And in the middle of the wedding, Perchik crosses the mechitza and asks Huddle to, marry, to, 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 to dance with him. Girls and boys dancing together? Who ever heard of such a thing? But then everyone dances together. Perchik re represents a second element of modernity. In tradition, God is the actor in history. Whatever happens in history is God's will. Our job is to be bystanders, to watch what happens, and to wait for God's revelation, and wait for God's redemption. Mashiach kommen, when Messiah comes, then we'll go back to Eretz Yisrael. Then we'll have the world to come. Perchik represents all the 19th century movements that said, no, we want redemption now. Socialism, Bolshevism, communism, capitalism, and Zionism were revolt against tradition. And they said, we will take control of the conditions of our own existence and we want redemption now, in this world, right now. Woody Allen said it best. I want immortality, I just don't want to have to die to have it. <laughs> and that's what Perchik represents. And remember what happens? Huddle leaves home to follow him to Siberia. That's the saddest moment in the movie, right? The home that I love, right? How, can I, how, can, how far away I'm going to be? And we all cry. Because what she's doing is more than just leaving home. She's taking with her his whole theory of history. The world is different. It's a world in which redemption is now, far from the home that I love. And then the third daughter is Chava. And Chava's a little girl who walked around with a book, with her, with a book in front of her face, with her nose in a book. And she, and she goes to the library. But in the village, the library is adjacent to the church. So who does she meet in the library? Fietka, the Russian boy. Oive. Right? And they fall in love. And it's more than just intermarriage. It's much deeper than that. What she represents and what, what their match, what their love represents is the fact that for the Middle Ages, for all of the Middle Ages, with the possible exception of Maimonides, Jews only talk to other Jews about Judaism, about our culture. It was an internal conversation. And you can say things internally that you can't say outside. And suddenly, with modernity, the walls of the ghetto fall. We are emancipated into larger society. And now we have to justify the claims of truth that our tradition makes in the face of modern sciences and philosophies. You believe in Genesis? Tell me how you understand evolution. You believe that you are the chosen people? Tell me how you understand the fact that every tribe and every people, every corner of the world calls itself the chosen of its divinity. You tell me that you live in a promised land? Everybody lives in their promised land. How do you understand the truth of your tradition in the face of all of the sciences of modernity? Now the conversation has to take place in a universalistic context. That's what Chava represents. Saitel, Chodl, and Chava, the three daughters of Tevye that are part of Fiddler on the Roof, they represent a new world. Now what's amazing about this new world, of course, is number one, that with, with, with autonomy, independence, and individualism, you lose any sense of mitzvah of the commandedness of tradition. That with Perchik's understanding of bringing redemption, we lose any sense of Jewish history. And with Chava's openness to modernity, you lose any sense of the revealed truth of the Torah. 
It destroys the underpinnings of Jewish affiliation, of Jewish connection, long before the Holocaust. Modernity destroyed traditional Judaism. And that's what puts us where we are today. It's no wonder that the Pew Report has such bad news for us. Because we are the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of Hava and Huddle and Seidel. And the question is, how do you run modernity in such a situation? But it's a deeper question. And here's the deeper question. If you take Seidel's individualism seriously, what happens is you end up with people whose lives are very lonely. If you say, I am my own self and I will choose and I will not accept a claim on the self because I interpret every claim on the self as somehow a diminishment of self and I want to assert my individuality and my freedom of options, you end up with a self who walks the world very much alone. How do you build community with people who say, I want my options all the time? I mean, here sits my dear friend Rabbi Spitz, and he will tell you that when people come to the modern synagogue, they come wearing the face of the consumer. As a consumer, I control the transaction. As a consumer, you can't claim me. I come for a commodity. I want my three-year-old to have a nursery school education or my 13-year-old to have a bar mitzvah. I pay you dues, you bar mitzvah my kid. That's it. Don't ask me for anything else. The modern Jew, who is Seitel's great-grandson, great-granddaughter, interprets any claim on the self as a diminishment of self. You know the old joke. The salmon and the chicken go for a walk, and they see a big sign, lox and eggs breakfast. And the, and the chicken says, let's go in. It looks interesting. The salmon says, I don't know. And the salmon says, come on, it's for charity. It's a good cause. And the salmon says, I don't know. And the chicken says, come on, it'll be lovely. We'll go inside. We'll have a good time. What's holding you back? And the salmon says, look at that sign. Lox and eggs breakfast. From you, they want a contribution. From me, they want commitment. <laughs> the modern Jew, who is Seitel's great-grandson, who interprets his dignity in terms of his independence and the open options of his freedom, engages the community in the face of the consumer because that way you can't make claims on him. But here's the problem. If every relationship is a consumption relation, is consumer, you never have deep intimacy. You can never have love. You can never have community. You can never have meaning. It's the problem with autonomy. We used to have, remember the newspaper used to print personal ads? Remember before J-Day was got, given to us by God? So there, remember there used to be newspaper? I used to read these. I used to love reading this. Friday night, we used to sit there, we used to read them in personal ads. So my kids thought they were very funny. Because I used to find how interesting it is how much the personal ads sounded just like the used car ads. You know, I'm looking for a late model, low maintenance, you know, low mileage, you know, with a nice trunk and good looking headlights, you know? I'm looking for a relationship because people interpret relationships like consumptive relationships. I'm buying something. Give of yourself, we say. Give of yourself. No, I can't do that. It's too scary. It's a reason why our kids don't marry till their 30s. They're scared of giving up the freedom that comes with the deep 
and personal intimate relationship. They're scared to join a community because it puts claims on the self. They're scared to affiliate because it diminishes self in that image of autonomy. And they live hollow lives. The great uh, sociologist Robert Putnam right, writes in his famous book, Bowling Alone, more people bowl, go bowling, than ever before. But fewer people bowl in leagues. We bowl alone. The Pew Report, we bowl alone. We are, we are very suspicious of community. And in the same way, that's, that's Seidel's problem. In Huddle's problem, it makes it very difficult to do a Pesach Seder if you don't believe in a God of history. But it's more than that. The question is, the question is where are we in history? And what does it mean to bring redemption? And what does it mean to accept responsibility for redeeming the world? And most of all, in Hava's world, what does it mean to advertise the truth of Jewish tradition in the, in the place of, of a relativism in which every truth claim is equal to every other truth claim, in which there is no privilege for Torah, there's no privilege, there's no privileged truth claim. What I'm suggesting is that, that these issues of, of modernity are not only threatening Jewish life, they threaten all of the canons of meaningful life. And this, believe it or not, is not bad news, it's good news. Because slowly, slowly, our children come to realize that the only way they can live meaningful lives is to live in a counterculture, to offer something which is contrary to the canons of modernity that they have come to live with. I want to present to you just one image of what that counterculture might look like. So if you'll turn the page, if you'll turn the page, this is a little bit of some sayings taken from the writing of the great Jewish philosopher Abram Joshua Heschel. Okay? Is that okay? Yeah. Everybody okay so far? Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot to throw on you in one half an hour, right? Uh -huh. So everybody take a breath, everybody breathe in. Especially if you had six glasses of wine, right? The wine was good, by the way, thank you. It makes the lecture go a lot easier. I don't know what he said, but he sure was entertaining, you know. I'll have to listen to the iTunes, right? I met Abraham Joshua Heschel when I was 17 years old. He'd already died. But when I was 17, no, 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 it's true. I'll tell you what happened. I was 17 years old, and my rabbi said I was a freshman in college, UC Santa Cruz. I had long hair. Ah, hair. Remember hair? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my, my rabbi sent me a letter saying he wanted me to help lead a college service on a Friday night. And my mama called me and said, the rabbi wants you to lead the college service. So I said, no, I, I don't want to do that. I hate those services. She said, oh, the rabbi's going to be very disappointed. I said, that's his problem. So I came home for Christmas vacation. Mom said, the rabbi wants to see you. Uh-oh. So I, I love my rabbi. He's a sweetheart. I went to my rabbi's house. And he says, what's the problem? I said, look, Rabbi, I love you. I love you. You've taught me so much. I love Yiddishkeit. I love Torah. I just can't stand the services in the synagogue. They're just not for me anymore. I just can't stand them. I, I can't come back and lead a service. I don't believe in this. I don't, it's just not for me. He said, do me a favor. Get up. Go to the bookshelf. You see the orange book, second to the left? I said, yeah. He said, go bring it down. Go bring it down. So I bring down this orange book. He says, open the first page, start reading out loud. This is what I read. It is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. 
it would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, disproved, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid. I said, heck, he's been to our services. Look. <laughs> That's our services, right? Irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid, right? When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religious speaks only in the name of authority rather than the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. I said, I love this guy. Who is he? He says his name is Abraham Joshua Heschel. Right? He says he just passed away two weeks ago. But you can read him. Take him home. Take the book home. And he gave me the book. And I've been his student ever since. Abram Joshua Heschel, born in 1907 in Warsaw. He was the heir to a great line of Hasidic rabbis. In, when he was 16 years old, his father died. And when his father died, his uncle took over his education. But Heschel had a rebellion against his world. And he, started, he was in Warsaw, started sneaking out, out of the yeshiva. Remember The Chosen? Remember the book The Chosen? A lot about Heschel in there. He'd sneak out of the yeshiva, go to the end of the block, where there was a coffee house where poets used to read poetry, and he would read his poetry there. His uncle and his mother realized that he needed more than the Hasidic community could give him, so they sent him away to Vilna, to a secular Jewish high school, and he finished high school at 19, and then instead of coming back to become Rebbe of the town, he went, to, he went to Berlin, and in Berlin he took a PhD in Semitics and philosophy. Six weeks before the Nazis invaded Poland, he went home to publish his PhD dissertation and to beg his family to come with him out of Europe. He had an uncle living in England, and he had, family, he had friends in, in America. He begged his family to come with him because he knew what was coming. But, the father, but, but his uncle was the Rebbe of the community and his, mo and his mother was her brother. Mother was her sister, his sister. So they said they couldn't come. And he said goodbye to his family and he never saw his uncle, his mother, or any one of his five sisters again. They all died in Auschwitz. He goes to England and from England to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he's invited by the Hebrew Union College to teach Bible. And from Cincinnati, Ohio, in 1945, he comes to the Jewish Theological Seminary, our alma mater, where he teaches from 1945 until 1972, when he passed away. He has one daughter, Susanna Heschel. His wife, Sylvia Strauss, was actually grew up in L.A. She belonged to, her family belongs to my shul. Her brother, Jack, was a good friend. She was a concert pianist. They met in Cincinnati. They have one daughter, Susanna Heschel, who you're going to be bringing to... With CSP, when's she coming? February 22nd. Right, February 22nd, you can meet the daughter. Suzanne is a brilliant scholar of German Jewry and German religion. Teaches at Dartmouth College and has two daughters. This is Heschel. Heschel is a chassid. What is a chassid? A chassid is a kind of Judaism that grew, up, that grew popular in the 18th century. I'll give you a little bit of, just to what, a, what is a chassid? Chassidism is best told in stories. It was a revolt against orthodoxy. Now, I know that sounds strange, because when you think of a chassid, you think of an orthodox Jew, a guy with a long black coat and a big black beard, sometimes a fuzzy hat, and you say, orthodox. No, 
Hasidism at its beginning was a revolt against orthodoxy. It said orthodoxy is stiff and formal and legalistic and it's missing heart. What's the famous story of the Hasid? Listen carefully. A Hasid and a Litvak, my ancestors, have a conversation. The Litvak says to the Hasid, the problem with you Hasidim is that you don't obey the law. There is halacha, there's law, tradition, custom. There's a time to daven the morning prayers, a time to daven the afternoon, a time to pray the evening prayers, and you Hasidim, you ignore those rules. Hasid looks sheepishly at his shoes and says, you know my brother, you're absolutely right. Let me tell you what happens to me. I get up in the morning and I'm ready to daven, I'm ready to pray on time. And I take my talis and my tfiln and my prayer book and I go to the window and I open the window to pray and just as I'm about to begin my prayers, the morning floods in. The song of the morning, the sunlight coming over the horizon, the birds singing, I hear children on their way to school, I see grown-ups on their way to work, I feel the energy of the morning, I'm so taken with the renewal of the world in the morning. I forget to pray until it's too late. Comes evening time. I'm determined to pray on time. So I take my prayer book. I go to the window. I open the window. I'm just about to begin my prayers when the song of the night enters. It's peaceful. It's calm. It's quiet. The sky has darkened. The stars come out. The moon, it shines. I see families gathered around their hearths all over the village. I smell the smell of cooking families together saying their good nights. And before I know it, the time to pray is over. That's what happens. So tomorrow I have a solution. Tomorrow I'm going to go pray, but I won't open the window. And the Litvak says, God forbid. That's how you know it's a Hasidic story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what is Hasidism? It's said that at the heart of religion is an experience. Every ritual, every rite, every text is an experience. And if we lose the experience, we lose the essence of religion. And what does that experience teach us? Every religious experience teaches us that the self is not autonomous. The self is not self-contained. The self is not self-possessed. The self is not independent. Every self is connected. The self is connected. What religion has come to tell us is the opposite of modernity. There's no such thing as an independent, autonomous, self-possessed self. We're all connected. Connection is life itself. There's no word for life in the grammatical singular in Hebrew. Sechayim. It's all about lives. This, said Heschel, this is the ultimate reality. So listen carefully. In 1964, he writes this article. What, what, he says, where is religion to be found? What sort of entity is it? What is its mode of being? He says, somebody who's in search of art finds it in art collections. Somebody who's in search of literature finds it in books and libraries. But where do you go to learn religion? Anybody here take religion in college? I took religion in college. Did you do that class? Religion one, comparative religion, 
Religious Studies 101. Remember? So the first thing we did is we read all the books. We had the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Bhagavad Gita, and the Upanishads, and the, and, the, and the Quran, right? And then we took field trips to the mosque, and the synagogue, and the ashram, and the, and the church, and the monastery. And then we met the practitioner, the rabbi, the imam, the guru, the meditation master. And then I took a test. <laughs> What's the meaning of jihad in contemporary Islam, right? What is, the, what is the significance of Israel, the state of Israel for contemporary Jews? What, is, what does salvation mean for Protestants? And I got a B. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Do I know religion? Heschel says, Heschel says, where do you go to learn religion? Do visible symbols as preserved in temples, doctrines and dogmas contained in books contain religion? Religion, he says, has been reduced to institution, symbol, and theology. Now, when I was in Hebrew school, it wasn't much worse. When I was in Hebrew school, I had, we had these European teachers. You know, they, they had a lot of suffering in Europe, so they came to impose it on us, right? <laughs> so my, my teacher, Mr. Locke, said, okay, boys, the one who is saying the Shema the fastest, he gets recess. The rest stay here and clean the room. One, two, three, go. Right, right? How many? You had to make a test on, on name six kosher animals and seven non-kosher animals. And to this day, I can't remember, Nina's here, I can't remember which order do you put the candles in the menorah and which order do you light them. I can never figure this stuff out. Institution, symbol, theology. Doing, how to do it. Right? This reduction, this, I'll, I'll translate the next line for you does not affect the pre-theological situation, the pre-symbolic depth of existence. To redirect the trend, we must lay bare what is involved in religious existence. We must recover the situations which precede and correspond to theological formulations. We must recall the questions which religious doctrines are trying to answer. The antecedents of religious commitment, the presuppositions of faith. Take any aspect of religion, any symbol, any ritual, any object, or any belief, and ask yourself, the guy who created that, what happened to him 15 minutes before he created it? Let's take an example. So give you an example, okay? Take something we all know well, the 23rd Psalm, right? It's the best, most famous Psalm in the book in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He has me lie down beside still waters. And though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Everybody know that, right? I can teach you that psalm. I can teach you that psalm in English. I can teach it to you in Hebrew. I can teach you when I was in seminary, we had to look up all of the ancient Near Eastern roots to all of the words. I know that psalm in Ugaritic. <laughs> I can teach you how that psalm is used in the liturgies of many different faiths. But after all of that, you still won't know the psalm. You know why? You won't know that psalm. I don't want to get anyone upset, but you won't know that psalm until the day you go to the oncologist's office with the person you love the most in the world. And the doctor puts an x-ray up on the screen and he says, you see that white spot? That's the tumor. I think I can get it out. And you say, you think you can get it out? He says, yes, cancer's a very difficult disease and there's a chill that comes over you. And you understand what he meant when he said, 
I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And then the person you're with takes your hand and squeezes your hand very hard. And you understand what the psalmist meant when he wrote, you're with me. You're not going to let me go. You will drag me from death back to life. You will not let me die. Then you will know the 23rd Psalm. That is, every expression of religion is based on an experience of profound human reality, and it's simply a capturing of that experience in words or symbols so that we might revisit that moment again. Right? I'll, I'll give you a, a less serious example. In my synagogue, we have bar mitzvahs almost every week. Any of you have bar and bar mitzvahs in your synagogues, right? Right? And we have a bar mitzvah almost every week. And, and we were given a custom by Satan that allows, <laughs> allows the parents to speak to the bar mitzvah kid. Do you have that custom too? May God direct, anyway. So the, every week you come to my shul week after week after week after week and you hear the same speech, right? I love you. You are the greatest child who ever lived. You're the greatest soccer player, the smartest scholar, the lead in the play, the first violin, right? I love you. I, my life would be empty without you, right? And then the father stands there and goes, son, I want you to know that the synagogue is a second home to us. I'm sitting next to my teacher, Harold Schulweis, who's been the rabbi in that synagogue for 45 years, and he says, who are these people? <laughs> I've never seen these people in my life. <laughs> so I say to him, I guess they don't get home very much, right? He says, I've never seen these people. What a second home, right? And you sit there going, oh, God, we have a speech that we rabbis love. Just so you'll know, it's a you have a speech. It's called Adventures in Obstetrics. Right? I paused and I paused and I paused. Like, lady, I don't want to think about that. I'm like this lady with her feet in stirrups. I don't want to think about that. I just don't want to think about that. Thank you very much, you know? And, and you sit there going, oh, Christ, if I have to sit through this, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm Grendel. I apologize. That slipped out. I'm sorry. Oh, heck. It's like if I have to sit through this one more week, I'm going to become a, you know, I, I just, it's terrible. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's your kid. <laughs> Ooh, or your grandkid or your niece and your nephew. And then it's you up there going, oh, I can't believe it's coming. It's a really different if it's your kid than if it's someone else's kid, right? It's the experience. Heschel says religion is about experiences. And all of the collection of religious, of religious literature and custom and symbol are really the collection of those experiences preserved for us by our ancestors. And the problem we have in the celebration of contemporary religion is that we've forgotten that this is a collection of experiences and we've forgotten how to access these experiences. Now what Heschel's going to try to do for us is try to describe what these experiences do for us. And so in his book, God in Search of Man, the beginning of the book, he gives us a sort of set of words. He says these experiences are really inexpressible. He uses the word ineffable, inexpressible. Now anybody who writes a 400 page book about that which is ineffable, 
right? It's very interesting, right? So here's what he says to us. Look at the bottom of the page. We'll just do this for another minute or two, and then we'll finish. He says the following. So what do these experiences lead us? What do they do for us? Ready? He says the following. And when you read Heschel, you have to stop after every line and try to figure it out, right? So he writes the following. Wonder, which he translates as radical amazement. So like regular amazement isn't good enough. That would be radical amazement. Is the chief characteristic of a religious person's attitude toward history and nature. Stop. If I asked you, what do you say? Is your, what would you say is the tree, chief attitude of a religious person's attitude? The chief, the chief characteristic of a religious person's attitude. You would say, belief, or faith, or commitment. You know, if you're in the Jewish community, you might say observance. You know, or affiliation. Heschel says, all that's great, all that's important, but that's not the one. The chief characteristic is wonder. Translate wonder. What's wonder? Yeah, I know, radical amazement, right. But what, is, what does that mean? It's the oh wow moment. You ever have an oh wow moment? Awe he uses later also. You ever have an oh wow moment? Anybody here have a grandchild born and they handed you the kid? And you said, oh, wow, right? Or anyone ever get off, get off their bed after a terrible disease and suddenly health is yours again and you say, oh, wow. Anyone ever surprised by life and say, oh, wow? Oh, wow is what religion is all about. Now, first of all, you got to ask yourself a crazy question. I went to Hebrew school. We never had, oh, wow, except, oh, wow, Hebrew school's over, you know? <laughs> I went to seminary for seven years. It wasn't, oh, wow, it was, oh, something else, you know? <laughs> when do you get, oh, wow, moments in religion? Isn't that interesting? Religion's about, oh, wow, moments. Right? Look at the next line. Look at the next line. One attitude is alien to his spirit, taking things for granted, regarding events as the natural course. What's the opposite of religion? The opposite of religion, according to Heschel, is not secular or profane, or ordinary, the opposite, or disbelief, or atheism. That's not the opposite of religion. The opposite of religion is boredom. Walking the world and saying, ho-hum, nothing much happening here. Boredom is the opposite of religion. Religious person walks the world, and everything is a surprise. Ooh. You ever see a three-year-old? I love three-year-olds. When I get bored with my work, I go downstairs to the nursery school and I hang out with three-year-olds. They're the most religious people in the world, right? <laughs> you see a bunch of three-year-olds and a bug walks in the classroom and it's like, oh. <laughs> you ever see a three-year-old with a glass of milk and a cookie? Oh, yeah. They give a snack, you know? They give the kid one Oreo cookie and a little glass of milk. And I watch this. It's so, it's so powerful, right? The kid takes the cookie and he contemplates, and then he dips the cookie in the milk, and he smears it between his hands, and he rubs it all over his body. It's like this polymorphous, perverse love. And I once made a prayer. I said, you know, once in my life, give me sex that good. You know, <laughs> just, just once. 
just, just, this kid is this, this orgasmic pleasure out of a, and, and I've eaten in the finest restaurants in America and Europe. I've had crepe Suzettes and creme brulee and, and I never had that kind of joy that a kid gets out of an Oreo and a cup of, you know, because kids, you ever, you ever give a little kid a, a Hanukkah present? What does he do with it? Opens it up and plays with the box. Yes! yes! Plays with the gift for three minutes and then the box. <laughs> Far out. It's a box. It's a tank. It's a fort. It's a house. It's a, it's a the box. You know, and now at Toys R Us, you know what they do? They don't sell toys. They sell boxes now. You know that? Seriously. You give the kid that charge you 15 bucks, but it's a box, you know, because they know what's going to happen. Because that's what a kid is all about, wonder. So what happened to us? Well, look at, the, look at the next paragraph. This is beautiful. This is what's on my desk, by the way. As civilization advances, the sense of wonder declines. Translation, the more education you have, the more boring you are. Why? Why? Because nothing surprises you anymore. Wow. Heschel used to go visit synagogues, churches, universities, and he'd give a lecture. He'd always begin the lecture saying, this little teeny guy, long gray beard, long hair, sort of wild-eyed look in his face. And he'd start the lecture, introduce him, he'd come to the podium, little guy. He'd say, ladies and gentlemen, a great miracle just happened. Audience would be immediately silent. What happened? What happened? What miracle? The sun just went down. <laughs> and half the audience thought he was a lunatic. And half the audience said, what do you mean? And he began talking about how a religious person sees the world. And you began to realize that the fact that the sun went down and you didn't rush to the window to see it means that something inside of you has died. Tonight we had a good sunset. Did you see it? Oh, yeah. Ooh, wow. Miracle, right? This is what Heschel says is religion. Now what happens with that? What do you do with that? We're going to come to the conclusion of this in a second. Awareness of the divine begins with wonder. That is, you begin understanding God, not with books, but with the experiences of everyday life that you take seriously. Because what happens in wonder? I realize that I live in a world where there's more than me. Self-transcendence is the essence of Heschel's philosophy. Self-transcendence, becoming understanding that there's more than me in the world. It's not about me. I am part of something much bigger than myself. Heschel has a very peculiar understanding of God. God, he says, is a principle of caring in the universe. All caring. And every time that I exercise caring, which means I open the self to include another in my circle of concern, I approach God. So if you'll turn the page, and with this I promise you I'll finish, right? He says, the sense of wonder and awe and mystery doesn't give us a knowledge of God. It only leads us to a plane where the question of God becomes an inescapable concern. Turn and look at the next paragraph. Religion begins with a consciousness that something is asked of us. When I live in the world and I have this sense of wonder, I walk the world with a sense of wonder, I gain a sense of awe. I have this mysterious experience of how much bigger the world is than my own concerns. 
I begin to understand that the reason I'm here is because something is asked of me. This is very different than modern religion. Most of us come to synagogue and they say, Rabbi, do it for me. Impress me. Entertain me. Move me. Connect me with my tradition. Rabbi, give it to me. And Heschel says it's the opposite. Religion is not about buying something. It's not about acquiring a commodity. Religion, like everything else that matters in the world, like love and marriage, like family, like community, like peoplehood, begins with the sense that something is asked of me. And it's in my connection with that which is bigger than me. My family, my people, my community, the world, that I locate my personal dignity. What is the meaning of my existence? Something is asked of me. And I am the only one that can answer that question. Something is asked of me. That's what religion is really all about. That's what Torah is all about. That's what Judaism is all about. That's what Judaism is all about. So the answer that Heschel says is, look, modernity has given us many, many blessings. No question. I'm very grateful to modernity. Medicine has saved my life twice. I'm a cancer patient. It matters to me. Prosperity, the freedoms to travel and to see the world, to learn of other cultures, cognitive freedom, the freedom of the intellect, to learn other peoples and other cultures. These are amazing gifts that my ancestors could only have dreamed about. And once I realized that when, when Tevi is saying, if I were a rich man, everything that he dreamed about, I have. Right? I even have a staircase that goes nowhere just for show. I have the same, same idiot contractor he had, you know? But everything that Tevye dreamed about, and more, I have. But what I don't have, that my religion gives me, is that powerful sense that something is asked of me. For that, I have to go beyond modernity, back to Torah, back to tradition, back to faith. Let's finish with the, my favorite song in the whole show. Come back to the, to the first page again of this section, and we'll finish with this song. I know Dr. Cassidy's here and wants to perform, and, and I'll finish with my little piece of music, and then you'll get some real music. <laughs> this comes at the end of the second act. The end of the second act of the play, when the village is being liquidated, the girls have all left home, Tevia and Goldie are home alone, and, su what? What? and suddenly they realize the world has changed radically. Tradition is no longer available to give them balance. And they don't know what's true anymore. And so he turns to her and asks the most touching question. Gentlemen, I'm going to ask you to play the role of Tevia. And ladies, I'm going to ask you to play the role of Goldie. OK, ready? Gentlemen, Goldie. Do you love me? Ladies, do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Goldie, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. 
But do you love me? Do I love you? For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Now stop a second. See, what's going on is what? He knows that the world has changed forever. She doesn't want to accept the fact yet. So she, he asks her the question, do you love me? And she doesn't understand the question. Because in her mind, you don't marry for love. You marry because that's what tradition asked you to do. You marry because that's what, that's what the community needed you to do. And he says, do you love me? And she says, I have fulfilled my obligation to you. Why are you asking me that? I have done what was asked of me. I washed your clothes and cooked your meals and cleaned your house and gave you children and milked the cow. Why do you talk about love right now? I've done what was asked of me. And he says, it's not enough anymore. We're in a different world now. I want to know what we are to each other. Remember when we got married? Let's go back. Ready? Goldie, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was nervous, so was I, but my father and my mother said we learned to love each other. And now I'm asking Goldie, do you love me? I know, but do you love me? Do I love him? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Then you love me. I suppose I do, and I suppose I love you two together. It doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. That was beautiful. Here's how I, one last point. This is not told Goldie and Tevye. This is the Jewish people and the Torah. And the Jewish people says to the, and Torah says to the Jewish people, Torah, our tradition, all of our ancestors, and all the wisdom that they created says to us, do you love me? And the Jewish people says, of course I love you. I've done everything I was supposed to do for you. And the Torah says, no, life is different now. It's not just a sense of obligation and responsibility. And it's certainly not done out of guilt. I want to know, says the Torah to the Jewish people, do you love me? Do you love me? And the Jewish people says, you know, I've done everything I was asked to do. And it's true, we live in a new world. But I do love you. And it does change a thing. It changes everything. After 2,500 years, it's nice to know. Thanks very much.